Dirty Cardboard, episode 159. Fucking new game. Coming to you from a rainy, dreary, and devoid of snow, Wakefield, Mass. Welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, 18xx, and other related topics in the board gaming hobby. We're your hosts. I'm Edward. And I'm Martin. So, this is all about what we've been playing lately. And it's funny, I, I felt like we haven't played many games, but then when we made the list, I was like, oh, and that. Oh, in that, mm. and so, so yeah. Uh, I'll go ahead and start off this with uh, with the first one, which was completely not on my radar. Never heard of it until it arrived uh, as part of a clever marketing um, thing that Board and Dice does. Board and Dice is far and away the best when it comes to the way they present these to. Uh, content creators, I guess, mm-hmm. and so I got this mystery box that showed up at the at at HCHQ. It had a candle in it. I had to light the candle and heat up a piece of paper that was in an envelope uh, that would give me some sort of symbol. And all this was for the Book of Rituals, which basically what this is was a continuation of the Escape Tales series of they're 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 kind of. Um, uh, escape room esque type things, but they're they're stories. They're they're almost hmm. uh, puzzle solving escape room esque things that are you know obviously once you've played it once you're probably done with it individually. And it continues in that universe, and it's a book of you're having to. It's it's more of that, I guess, is what okay. I'm trying to say. And it was it was cleverly done. It's I I really enjoy these these clever puzzles. Uh, even though I'm usually pretty terrible about them, and I did an unboxing of this live, and we did a few of the puzzles, and I actually figured one out without the help of the peanut gallery, but outside <laughs> of that, it was it was ugly. The the peanut gallery very much has to help with these. But yeah, the Book of Rituals, um, pretty clever, pretty cool. Looking forward to trying more of the puzzles. Do you have you ever played any of those before? No, I'm not really an escape room kind of guy. Um, actually, I don't find puzzles very interesting, which is kind of odd since I enjoy board games. But you know, when it comes to solo puzzles or any kind of puzzly stuff, I'm kind of, eh, what's the point? That's okay. why I didn't like Latin at school because it was all about puzzles, right? So, <laughs> so, so, so you've never done an escape room? No. No interest in doing an no, escape room. No, not really. Really? I mean, if it was a social thing, yeah. you know, it was one of these social escape room things, I might give it a shot. And of course, D&D often has puzzle elements in it that are set by the, the games master. And I, I quite enjoy that, but it's more the social side than actually doing a puzzle. So when I'm on my own, I've got no desire for it. Okay. Well, I like them. Mm. So, Book of Rituals. There you go. And how about you? Uh, I mean, a lot of this is going to be both of us. Yeah. Right. Being able to try. And well, the impetus for the episode, I guess, was we've done a number of sponsor playthroughs in which we're not doing roundtables. And so, right. hey, why don't we talk about some of these games? And that was that was kind of the impetus for this. So that said. Yeah. So let's uh, kick off the list with uh, Anno 1800, which was uh, a game that we've heard a lot about because it's taken a long time to get over to this side of the uh, Atlantic, and yet we hadn't actually seen it. And I'd heard some very good things about it. People saying, you know, the great return to form from Martin Wallace, which you know, definitely got my interest. Sure. 
Um, and it was a good game. I really quite enjoyed it. It's uh, we we characterised it a bit as Tech Tree the game, which is actually something that's happened for a couple of other games that will also contrast to this. Um, the basic idea is you have this um, selection of industries that you can build that is based on other industries that are out there. So if you want to produce glass, um, you need to use up some goods and some um, coal. And then once you've got glass, you can use that glass to help build windows. Um, and the, that's kind of a the tech tree progression. The interesting thing about this game particularly, though, is that you, if you don't have a particular good and you want to build the next level in the tree, you can also trade with other people. So if I want windows, I've got wood, but I don't have glass, but Edward has glass, I can trade with him to glass. And the trade works out in a kind of way that we're both happy because I get something I want, but he gets a little bit of something as well. Not so much directly paid by me, but in a kind of, kind of indirect manner that actually works nicely for both of us. So trade's a bit of a misnomer, even though I think that's what it's called in the game. It's a non-voluntary, okay, uh, you're, I'm going to use your resource that you have discovered or figured out how to make, but... Like you said, Martin, both of us benefit from it, but I can't keep you from using it. Right. Which, but I do get a benefit and it doesn't in any way negatively impact me other than it allows you to develop this new technology or this new thing that maybe I wanted to do first, but outside of that, it doesn't impede right. me in any way. It, it's kind of like Seven Wonders in that respect. You know, I can use my neighbor's thing, except here I can use anybody else's on the board. And I think what I like about that is it means you have to be constantly aware of what other people are doing and what you think other people might do. Because, you know, I might really want to build windows, but if I haven't got glass, I'm going to have to build glass myself first. Do I think Edward's going to go ahead and build glass? Because if he is, then I can wait and let him build glass and then I can take advantage of it. And that interactivity, I think, that comes out through the game is really nice. And the fact that there are no benefits direct victory point benefits of you discovering the technology versus your neighbors or anyone else in the game for that matter uh is kind of a an interesting do i stall to let you do that type thing because by building that or creating that i don't get any direct victory points from it so there all i'm doing is quote unquote, wasting the resources to make that available to now, oh, hey, I have developed this thing. Now everybody else can leech off of me, which right. uh, that is kind of a an interesting, I know that you know that I know that you know type thing. And, and can I wait? Do I have other priorities, et cetera, et cetera. And the other, another really great aspect of this game is the way the the end game trigger is, I guess, mm -hmm. because the goal of the game is to get rid of cards. Yeah. So the way you score points in this game is you basically have cards, which are recipe fulfillment cards. And that's what you want the things for. I might have somebody who says, I want to fulfill this card. I need sausages and glass or, you know, sausages and windows, I suppose, using my example from earlier on. And you want to then be able to fulfill that and get the points from it. And people, other people don't know what's in your hands. So, I mean, that makes the predictions obviously a bit more tricky as to what people are building. But then the interesting thing is that as I acquire some technologies, I might acquire more cards during the course of the game. But the in-game trigger, as you say, is getting rid of all of your cards, which doesn't necessarily mean you win the game. It just triggers the end of the game. 
Um, but that's an, an interesting uh, mechanism, I think. I agree. And I, it makes it a variable ending to the game and completely player controlled. And depending on what end game goal cards are out there and everything, it may behoove players to race the end of the game and have it come along far quicker than you might otherwise think. And it also talking about that heads up play, being aware of what all the other players at the table are doing. It forces players to be uh, very cognizant of how many cards are in each player's hand, et cetera, et cetera. And one other interesting aspect of this is every time that you develop a new technology or, or on this tech tree, it's going to come with a cost, that cost being adding more cards to your hand, which, mm. yay, benefit. You can do more stuff. You can potentially get more victory points that way. But boo on the negative side is it's more cards in my hand and I'm that much further away from ending the game so it's a really really clever really well done i think uh push pull mechanism mm. that's in this yeah and the rules complexity is about right for the game it's easy enough to teach um there's enough depth to make it interesting i'd call it a nice very solid sort of medium weightish game quite happy to, to pick that up and play it and it it kind of feels it's definitely not super old school Martin Wallace in that the rules are just a handful of pages and boom, let's roll into it. Uh, but it's it's probably closer to that than a lot of his more recent stuff. Mm -hmm. And I had came into it with zero expectation and came away, even though I'm terrible at the game, mind you, I really thoroughly enjoyed Anno yep. 1800. Now, in our notes, we have it uh, a couple of comparisons. You want to go first with your... Yeah, so a comparison that leaps to my mind is Beyond the Sun, which I actually only played a couple of months ago um, here at, uh, on our, one of our game days. And that, again, also is very much about tech trees, but it's a very different take. I mean, the thing that they have in common is rather than you've got a game where the tech tree is kind of part of a supporting structure of the game, um, which is the case in, in most civilization games. You're building up your civilization, the tech tree is part of that supporting structure. This really makes the tech tree central to the game, and everything else is secondary, obviously. Um, now, Anno does it by having a fairly fixed tech, tech tree that's fairly wide, um, but then using this trade as an interesting interaction mechanism. Beyond the Sun does it slightly differently in that there are certain technologies in sort of broad um, categories of, of level of sophistication, but the way they linked uh, linked together through preconditions is entirely driven by how you lay out the game board randomly at the beginning of the game. So that gives you opportunities for interesting combos where you say, oh, this particular combination of technologies, I can make use of that in order to do something interesting with the gameplay. Um, and then the, the you use the technologies with a fairly straightforward space um, exploration area majority thing, which is simple, but it does enough to resolve what you're doing in the tech tree that it works quite nicely. And again, like Anno, it's a medium weight game. The rules complexity is about right. It's not too much. Um, there's enough depth to make it an interesting game. And what just what's fascinating is how they both take this idea of make the tech tree center of the game, but they find a different way to express that. Yeah, and it's funny that you bring this up because when I, the two or three times now that I've played Anno, the two games that come to mind to me are also Beyond the Sun, but also going back, what, like eight, nine years now at this point is Craftsman by Christoph Matsutsik. 
which was another recipe fulfillment tech tree. Essentially, you need these things to then be able to create this, which is almost identical to what the core thing in Anno does and, and what your goals are, except this is done via card play as opposed to, um, you know, the tiles and, mm -hmm. and your player board. And th this feels like a refinement on that and a boiling down to the core mechanism of what it is that you're trying to do. But it definitely harkened back to a lot of the things that Craftsman did, but this just streamlined a whole lot of it. And it plays in half the time, <laughs> if not, if not a little bit less than even that. And I see that as a benefit. What it did do though, is make me want to get craftsmen back to the table to be able to directly compare and contrast. Cause it's been a minute since oh, right. I played craftsmen. It's probably legitimately probably been four or five years since I played that game. So I would like to refresh, but that's the immediate kind of guttural oh wow this reminds me of and that was both beyond the sun and and craftsman so yeah, i've yeah. never played craftsman we need to remedy that okay so anno yeah i i'd say we both uh definitely it came away with positive uh positive yeah it was feelings. definitely two plays and you know it's not enough for me to really sense how much i like a game after two plays but it was definitely a case of oh i'd like to play that again could possibly imagine buying it at some point, maybe, depending on uh, you know what we've got on the queue. But it's definitely on the list of games to look at and consider next time I want to pick something up. Yeah, I definitely am uh, wanting to play it some more, which, I, as a general rule, that, I mean, that yeah. can't be a bad thing, right? One game that uh, I know you weren't a part of was After Pablo. And After Pablo was a very obscure, I, I think it still is, a Nate Hayden game. It's the first game that put Nate Hayden on my radar. I had heard about this game and I have never been able to acquire a copy because for the longest time it's been way out of print, very low print run, very expensive. But now there are copies available you can actually order and it's it's basically a remake of it on a print-on-demand type thing. And the Medellin Cartel and then the Cali Cartel afterwards. And if you ever watched the show on Netflix, this is, you know, theoretically that time period this takes place. And the premise of this game is Pablo Escobar has been killed by the U.S. slash Colombian government and now it's who's going to take over that. The production quality on this game is very, let's, let's say the art direction on this is very eclectic, and it's uh, it definitely seems like a passion project. The game itself is very uh, relatively simple in that all, uh, the, all of us are going through and trying to acquire a hand of cards, and these hand of cards, they're multi-use cards, and you're trying to go around. You need to bear with me on the uh on the theme here but you're trying to acquire cocaine and then trying to smuggle it into the u.s and then uh distribute it to the various cities to be able to get money to be able to get points that's kind of like that, an infamous traffic i guess it is it, it they're very different games but yes <laughs> theoretically same the, theme the premise and the and the theme is very much uh the same in that it is the illicit cocaine trade or opium trade as it were and it's very it's very uh, has sharp edges it's very uh, it can be 
described, I guess, as a mean game. And the theme is very much going to turn some people off or possibly turn people on because this is not your atypical mm. type theme. And I enjoyed it. It's fine. The game shows its age a little bit. I don't remember what year, but this is probably around, my guess, is 2010, 2012 timeframe. It just it feels that type of uh, mechanisms. And it was fine. I enjoyed it. It, I love that it takes a kind of a, an adult theme here and turns it into something gameable. And you don't feel like, you know, it does omit a lot of aspects of the drug trade. You don't see any of the victims of the drug trade. You don't see the the broken homes and the broken lives. It doesn't, it, it complete. it's not that it glosses over it. It just, it's not talking about that part of the drug trade. So keep that in mind that I don't think it handles it with, respect or it just shows it the way it is and it doesn't glorify it i don't think which i think is an important thing to point out but the game was fine i didn't love it i didn't hate it uh am i jones in to actually get this grail game copy that yeah less so now that i've actually hmm. played it and one thing that i've learned is a lot of these grail game type things that you know oh super hard to get whatever whenever you actually play the game tends to be a letdown that might not always be the case, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, in this, it was fine. I'm not excited to go and get a copy, but I'm definitely grateful for Mike for providing us a copy so we could, we could give it a go. But would I play it again? Sure. Am I Jones in to do so? No. And that's, uh, that's, that's after Pablo. Okay. So one of the great things about uh, being living just down the road from Heavy Cardboard HQ is I get to play a bunch of games that aren't even released yet. Um, and uh, the next one on the list is one of those, um, Weather Machine by Vital Lacerda. I've heard of this. Yes. Yeah, so it went on Kickstarter about uh, a few weeks ago. Um, and uh, we needed to show it as part of the Kickstarter campaign. So as a result, it gets a, a rather splendid pre-production copy. I mean... Prototypes these days are getting pretty ridiculous, aren't I'm, they? I'm telling you, there are plenty of uh, games that I have in my possession that are not as nice as this prototype. <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah. The the level of of production is just really impressive across the board in the industry nowadays. This clever scientist who's built this machine that can be used to control weather, except the machine kind of goes wonky and has ill-considered side effects. Um, unexpected consequences, etc. We we might look at a parallel for the entirety of the last of the industrial era, I guess. But take it as it is. Your job is to um, research uh, ways to fix this, um, which indulges in, in, oh, indulges involves um, doing experiments. Um, it involves writing papers and then conducting um, larger scale in, uh, experiments. All of which in the pursuit of victory points. Um, and I think he might have given some silly word for victory points. I can't remember now, but it wasn't Climate wigs. points, I that think, was maybe. It, yeah. I think. After wigs, nothing really, uh, which was Lisboa's uh, victory point name, nothing else is going to come close, I'm afraid. And, uh, well, I had to summarize this. Again, I only played it a couple of times, so it's more a case of how do you feel about playing it again as opposed to a really deep 
view of the game. One thing, I, I guess the biggest summary I take away from it is it's very much like my, the other Vita Lacerda games I've played. Um, I've played the Galaris, I've played Lisboa, I haven't played any of the others. And my feeling was this was this would appeal to very much the same kind of people who liked those. I agree. And the the initial kind of gut feeling that I got, because I've played, I think I've played all of VTOL's games at this point, uh, is kind of Kanban-esque a little bit. But now, I don't want to make a direct comparison to that. But the similarities are that in this game, you have one worker and you have kind of a a different uh, areas in which you can go in quote-unquote work. There are four different areas in this game. You take your one worker, and there are some spots that are occupied by the other players, as well as Latif, who is this mad scientist-type guy, uh, akin to kind of Sandra. Except Latif isn't punishing you like Sandra did in Kanban, nothing like that. And actually it's beneficial whenever you go to wherever Latif is as opposed to Sandra. But the, the Kanban-esque uh, similarities are one worker, different areas you can go to. Latif will always move to the next area, kind of like Sandra. So that, on just a surface level, reminded me of a Kanban-type thing. Well, the gallerist as well. You have one worker moving between different zones, and then depending where you're going, you might be pushing somebody else and giving them the extra go. So there's, there's definitely a theme of having the one worker moving between different zones that, right. that he's there, used a few times. There's no piggybacking in this game like there is in gal the gallerist. There is no punishment, per se, like there is in Kanban and Sandra. But there... it. The different areas that you can go to, the government area or the lab or R&D or whatever, they all feel very distinct. They all feel like, okay, I'm doing this little thing, but they all have tentacles that relate to one another and connect to one another. And so it it felt original, yet it felt like a VTOL Asserta mm. game, which I think is a bit of a mixed bag. Now, do I enjoy most of VTOL's games? Yes. However, does this separate itself to a point to where if I have this, this, and this, do I need that? I don't know, to be honest. Now, I've played it four or five times at this point. And on the negative side of VTOL's games, are there are a lot of steps that you need to remember. And it's very, very easy to forget. Oh, I didn't move on this track or, Oh, we forgot to do this or, Oh, we forgot that. I find that is a hallmark of just about every one of VTOL's big yep. box games. Yep. So that would be the downside. The way he integrates the theme in the games, I think is done pretty well. He always does a really good job. I think of getting the theme to inform the rules and back and forth. I think he does that. As good as anybody I know. I mean, Martin Wallace is the obvious other person who tends to think much about how to integrate theme, but it's a very different experience to, say, um, the tea games that I wind about on the last time we chatted together where there's a theme and really, no, it's no connection to mechanics at all. Whereas this, it definitely feels oh, like, yeah. but at the same time, the theme is not hardwired into this to where I don't feel feel like I'm saving the planet right. from, you know, this, uh, you know, terrible weather that's going haywire. I don't get that feeling at all throughout this game. It's, it's a series of mechanisms that I'm trying to get victory points from, but 
the theme does inform the actions that you're taking. So it does help in that. So it's integrated well in that regard. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I felt the theme much less than in the other two Lucerdas I've played, the Gallerist and Lisboa. I mean, with the Gallerist, I really did feel I was building up artists and, and a business. With Lisboa, there was this constant look of how every little mechanic in the game reflected some historic fact. You know, oh, I get the rubble and I put it in this little pile. Oh, because that's building up my warehouses, which were made out of the rubble of, because after the earthquake, and you kind of go, this has got little, little, spark of joy goes into you. You think, oh, he's cleverly put this little mechanic in place and it reflects the history. Now, of course, this being an imaginary world, not a history, that spark can't really appear in quite the same way. That said, I do really enjoy the way the mechanisms mm. work in this game. I, I have enjoyed my plays of this and I've enjoyed how one mechanism feeds into the other. And this, this isn't complexity for complexity's sake. This is it's a complex game. I mean, it's a veto. It, it's definitely uh, a weighty game, but at no point does it feel bloated. It doesn't feel like, oh, this could have gone away or or could have done without this. It all seems well balanced and it seems well integrated in that regard. But does it separate itself enough? That I don't know. And I obviously one person's opinion. Somebody else might feel completely different. I don't know that it is a huge differentiation between Kanban on Mars and the gallerist and all of these, even though the theme is completely different, the mechanisms are original in that the way they tie together, mm. how that works. But is this, Oh wow. You have got to go get that. That I hesitate on. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and I, I, it makes me, reminds me of how I felt when I ran into Lisboa because I'd, I'd got the gallerist and I'd enjoyed the gallerist, but I kind of felt I don't need another Vitola Serta game. I think one is probably going to do it for me. And then I played Lisboa a couple of times and I just had to get it. There was something that really spoke to me about Lisboa. I don't feel that with Weather Machine. And that maybe because it's my third game as opposed to my second Lisboa game, I don't know. But I have to say, I don't have that feeling. On the other hand, though, I do want to, again, bring up this contrast with the tea games, uh, Takano, Teotihuacan, and Tuanitsu, um, that I've also played, that are similarly complex, although in some ways less complex. And I, yet, I agree with that. And yet yeah. feel more clunky. Um, I feel there's something about the way that Vital interconnects his mechanisms that's just really enjoyable. And I end up feeling, most while with these tea games, I could quite happily... Not well, more than more quite happily not play them again. I'm just kind of going to be, oh, what else is on offer if one of those comes up? With Weather Machine, I'm happy to play it again because there's something about the way it works that is more appealing than so many of the other. And it's not just the tea games. I'm kind of picking on them because I can make a big category of them. But there's quite a lot of heavy Euro games in that class where I, I don't feel as in, interested. Fair. And on the flip side of it, the the thing that I will say about a VTOL game is kind of referencing back to what I said earlier was there's always going to be that one thing that you forget to do or it's easy to overlook. And I find that uh, universal just about in every one of VTOL's games. So and that and it's I feel mentally exhausted mm. after I'm done playing a VTOL game. 
Now, the question I, I'm asking myself is, is that because of trying to keep the rules straight in my head and what the game allows or disallows, or did I forget this or not? Or is it due to the planning and the depth of the game? I don't know. I, I haven't been able to separate those yet and definitively say, oh, no, it's just game maintenance that exhausts me, or is it because of the mechanisms and, and the puzzle that is the game? I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that, like I said, the the keeping things straight, the rules do not get out of the way in, the, in Weather Machine, much like a lot of other VTOL games, just from a simple standpoint of, there's a lot of things going on in here, and it's easy. Even though the player aid is eight pages, I think. Yeah. That should tell you there's a lot going on here, and it's easy to miss little aspects of it. Oh, hey, did we clear the experiment? Did right. that run? Did we miss that step? And it's just, it's there's maintenance involved. But if you like VTOL's games, I think you're going to really enjoy Weather Machine. If you don't like VTOL's games, I don't think there's anything here that is going to uh, change your mind about no. that. Now, the interesting thing about the mental exhaustion is a good point because I have the same feeling. I certainly feel like I've, my brain's got a good workout after a VTOL game. The interesting thing, though, is, and I think it is the planning and the depth of the game, certainly for me. And the reason I say that is most VTOL games I've played, I've been running the game to some extent that there's at least one person at the table who does not know the rules terribly well. So I'm going to having to, to watch that. Um, and while with the other games that I was mentioning, I'm usually one of the rabbits at the table and there's somebody else doing that. And even so, I feel more exhausted playing the... the um, that's the wrong way around, isn't it? I feel more exhausted, but I don't feel that it's the watching people that's done it. Because the thing with the, v the complexity of rules in a VTAL game for me and where it gets irritating is where you've got these multi-step things that you have to do to do certain actions. There's always three or four actions in a VTAL game that take six steps. And one or two of those steps is not obvious. And it's easy to think, oh, yeah, I can, I can do this. I know what it takes to sell a piece of art. And then you forget an important step in the middle of it and you go, oh, Long. And somehow that doesn't impact me in the same kind of way as it does with other games where the actions are simpler, but the scoring and everything is so diffuse that I'm not really, I'm not engaged in the game to the same degree. I think that's fair. I think that's really a good point. And it's funny, like the, the, the one thing in Weather Machine, step one each turn is you can, you acquire tiles, investment tiles, or... Uh, other tiles, I forget the name of them off the top of my head. And the very first thing you can do on your turn is you can activate one of those or, or use one of those. And almost across the board, even though it's laid out on your player board, it's all, I mean, the information's all right there in front of you. You get so focused on, oh, I can go do this and this and this and this and this, which then leads me to that. You forget step one. And almost across the board, we would forget, oh yeah, wait, I meant to use my investment mm. token first to be able to. So it's, it's that type yeah. thing that, it, which is exactly what we're talking about. But now that I think about it and the way, and the fact that you frame that, I find myself 
because I, I feel pretty confident in the way I, I run a weather machine at this point and have a good enough grasp for it. The, even though the rules aren't out of the way for other people, they pretty much are for me. Doesn't make me immune from missing a step here or mm. there, especially as my brain gets more and more tired throughout the game. But I feel completely engaged when I'm playing the game. So yeah, I think you are right. I think it is... It's not the niggling little rules that are exhausting to me. I think it is just the 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 depth of the of the decisions that I'm trying to make and the and the solving the puzzle, if you will. Yeah. So I think you're right, actually. I think I was able to work through that while listening to you talk about that. So hey, thanks, Martin. Good. And before we leave it, I do want to shout out the the artwork on this game. I mean, I'm a you know tool fan when it comes to his artwork generally. This could be his most beautiful game yet. I mean, the way he's made that wonderful Art Nouveau, little bit of steampunk-esque twitched in, and it's just gorgeous. Um, I mean, even on a prototype, really spectacular. I mean, I thought Lisboa was an amazingly beautiful game, um, but you know, this is right up there with it. It's a real corker. There, there are a couple of maybe graphic design choices I would have done a little bit differently than what Ian did because I have found that in our the course of our plays that people confuse little aspects of it here or there. But as far as an aesthetic, I agree wholeheartedly with you. Mm. All right. So that is Weather Machine. <laughs> Let me go ahead and continue talking about games that uh, I guess you weren't a part of. Uh, one was a playthrough of a game uh, with the designer, with Bissime, and with uh, Liz Davidson of Beyond Solitaire, and that was Samaramit, the upcoming game uh, from Ion Game Design, and their CEO designed Samaramit, uh, as well as the, the development team there at Ion, which is... A about a I I'd never heard of her until this game. And again, this is where that whole board games informing history, history informing board games, and makes you want to learn more about it. A Assyrian queen whose husband was king died, and she, which is unheard of back in oh god, BC times, uh, where women would rule. Like that was unheard of, yet she was able to rule, and it wasn't a very long rule, it was a handful of years. And the way the game played out was kind of a uh, States of Siege-esque. It's a co-op game, which y'all know how I feel about that, first off. And it was on TTS, also not a fan. Yet, yet, as a solo game, I could see myself really, really digging this hmm. because I don't like co-ops. And so, therefore... Co-ops usually lend themselves to solo play really, really well. Yeah. And so a States of Siege, for those that are unfamiliar, is basically you have uh, hordes of bad guys, uh, whoever the bad guys may be, coming in and forcing their way in, and you're trying to acquire or uh, stop them or uh, lock down certain areas and, and stop them in certain areas and reach your objectives. So this game has some clever card play and it has a fair bit of randomness which i think this type of game needs as well and so i found myself even though a co-op not really my my jam the fact that it's based in history and yet uh, a, a piece of history that i didn't really enjoy 
or didn't know about, I should say, that I found myself really enjoying the game and excited about it. So I haven't messed with a physical copy. This was just a, a TTS uh, as a as a early build of it, but found myself surprisingly excited about it. So mm. yeah, so Summer Amit. Um, I believe it was on Game Found, I think is what the service is called. I don't think it is anymore. Neither here nor there. Played it, enjoyed it, looking forward to it. So yeah. <laughs> Continuing theme of the theme of games to come, um, the next one to bring up is hegemony or hegemony, depending on how you like to pronounce it. Hegemony, I think, is how it's supposed to. I don't know. I'm not going to well, correct. No, the, no. The I, I looked a little bit more because I got a bit confused because I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. Apparently, it's a British American thing. In Britain, it's more likely to be pronounced hegemony, and in uh, America, it's more hegemony. Um, interesting but okay. i never heard the word that much i was it's one of those words i read a lot but never heard and so you don't know how to pronounce it in that situation right so so yeah i'm a bit confused a part of me feels i need to say hegemony just to keep the, the americans in line but um i'm also an american so hegemony <laughs> is perhaps the word of anyway but however you pronounce it um a really interesting game um it comes with a lot of red flags around it because you hear about, oh, it comes with this 40-page collection of essays by economists. It feels uh, like a labor of love by academics in the subject. So is it really going to be a game? It's a game. Yeah. And it, boy, does it. it you you want to talk about theme, oh, yeah. both informing the actions, but also like everything about this game. Like you feel like you're doing exactly what you're doing. Whereas where we talked about uh, in Weather Machine, we didn't really feel like we're fixing the weather per se, even though the theme did inform the actions. Here, if you are the working class or if you are the capitalist class or any of those things, you feel like you're you're doing what it is that that class is trying to do. What the game is, for, for those who don't know. So basically, it's an economic simulation of a nation-state and the competition between the various classes, effectively. Um, in order to get the most most from it. So the player takes on either the working class, in which case what they're trying to do is make their class prosperous, um, build up their um, happiness, plenty of food, some consumer goods, perhaps healthcare, things of that kind. There's the capitalists, which I'm more familiar with because I've played the capitalists both times. Your job is just to make money, lots and lots of money. The more of it, the better. And you're typically starting big companies, uh, employing working class people to work in those, but trying to pay them as little as possible while selling all of your stuff to the working class for as much as possible. Then there's the middle class who are kind of in the middle. They do a bit of both. They both work in the factories of the capitalists, but they also have some smaller businesses of their own which would employ their own class, but also some working class people. They also have to buy stuff like food and healthcare and all that kind of thing. Um, but they can also get money from running their small companies. And then the fourth factor in the game is the state. And the states can run companies themselves because there are state healthcare or whatever organizations. Um, their job is to try and keep all the classes happy. So they want their credibility to be good with all of those classes and balance their credibility across the four of them. 
And the game scales in a very particular way. If there's only two players, it's just working class and capitalists, and the state becomes effectively a, a, a an automata. Then if it's three players, you introduce the middle class, and the state remains an automata. And then in the four-player game, the state becomes a, an actual player. With a caveat here that all of this is subject to change. There were stretch goals, and these things may change from right. the way. But the copy that we had, that's how it was laid out. Yeah. And the other important thing to note this game is this is a very asymmetric play. It's not so much that each player has asymmetric um, goals as to win and maybe a special ability or two. No, each player is playing a completely different game. As a capitalist, you know, I'm thinking about opening companies and doing trade with uh, foreign countries to sell my goods and things of that kind. Working class player... Completely different things are thinking about. I'm trying to survive over here. I'm trying to get healthcare. I'm trying to get uh, uh, higher education to get my workers uh, more money. I'm trying to maybe get some goods that I can then turn into victory points. And again, you mentioned the working class trying to do certain things, the or kind of balance between those two. And then the state is trying to deal with their own events that the state has to deal with while also trying to entice the other players with uh, handouts or or not handouts, but aid the the three classes as well. And not only all that, but everybody has their own asymmetric deck of cards from which they're building their hand and playing actions from. And these are multi-use cards. Either play it for the event, kind of a Twilight Struggle-esque in it that you're either going to play it for the event or you're going to play it for a basic action. And that basic action, even the basic actions, there might be some overlap between the players, but they are asymmetric to your class. Like, I'm the only, uh, I say I, because I played the the working class in our games of it, that you can demonstrate or you can strike and you can demand higher wages and all of those things. But one of the other core things that we haven't even talked about yet is the ability to influence policy. Mm. There are seven different policies in this game that very much impact the rules of the game or the rules of our, you know, unnamed country that we're all a part of. And it's done via a voting system. And the way that voting system works is, uh, I would say fair and balanced in a sense that you, you know how things could go. You just don't know definitively how they're going to play out. And any of these of the seven, uh, uh, different, uh, policies can change either in the middle of a round or, or, or at the end of a round or possibly stay the same and how those change affect taxes that the middle, that all three classes pay to the state or not, as it were, uh, as well as how many workers are available for the middle class and the working class to be able to come into play. But the more workers there are, the more expensive it is to maintain and to be able to score victory points. And the asymmetric aspect of scoring points is completely different, whereas a couple of the classes, the working class and the middle class, tend to score the majority of their points during the round, whereas the capitalist and the state, they tend to score their points during the scoring phase. So it's it is the most asymmetric game I think I've played. And I'm including a game like Root or, you know, I mm. haven't played Vast, but they're completely different types of games. But you want to talk asymmetric? 
Oh yeah, this game very much. If I were playing the state versus any of the other, I would feel like I'm playing a completely different game. Yeah, but and yet they're very interconnected. In that sense, yes, it's, it definitely made me think of something like Root, which is the only time I've played a game that is of that nature. And of course, coin games are known for being like that, but I've never tried them, so I don't, I can't really compare. A lot of interaction, both through the politics and this voting influence, and of course on the board. I mean. Where, where do you have your workers? Do you want to move your workers from state factories to private factories because one pays more than the other? Do you want to do a strike to try and influence the capitalists to give you more money? And the theme is just superb. And so many bits that really, I mean, I was smiling in my game when the working class were keen to increase immigration. I was thinking, hey, cool, I got cheap workers. Come on, bring them on. <laughs> and you get that kind of trade-offs, often tricky trade-offs for each player to decide, do I really want this? Um, tariffs, the, the working class kind of doesn't like how much money the capitalists are making by selling these special deals off internationally. So push tariffs up, but then tariffs raise the price of food. So the capitalists are getting more money screwing over the working class by raising food prices. There's all sorts of interesting little interactions going on here. Um, so two plays in, I'm definitely wanting to play this more. I actually ended up getting uh, putting on myself on the Kickstarter because I thought it was going to be really interesting. I'm not sure how it's really going to work out once you get to sort of six or seven plays. Will it feel a bit samey over time? You'll begin to feel those rails that you're running on? I don't know. You can't tell after two games. But I'm certainly very interested to try this thing out more. Yeah, my it was it was pretty interesting my the evolution of my excitement of this game. Uh when I first heard about it I was like, "Oh wow, this sounds fantastic." Then I op I got the box. Rado sent uh me the copy he used and so got the box and I saw that 44-page collection of essays and my excitement and anticipation of this plummeted. Uh, because I was like, oh God, it's one of those games. And what I mean by that is like you, like Martin said at the beginning, like passion project, you know, people that are, you know, really knowledgeable about a subject decided to make a game. And usually in my experience, that doesn't end up working out so well. And so when I saw that and then, uh, dealing with a prototype rule book, just setting the game up trying to make heads or tails of stuff took me forever. And so my anticipation of this just kept going lower and lower. And I was like, oh God. And then we actually went through the rules and my anticipation started to increase again. And then when we were playing it, I was like, okay, this, this is really impressive. This is really, they, it feels like they nailed what it was they were trying to do as far as feel like the class that you're playing. We say class, even though the state isn't a class, but you know what we mean. Uh, the class you're playing, it feels like you're representing that class in this game and you're doing the things and in, in, in trying to manipulate things to the betterment of your class. And it just, it was just done so well. Mm -hmm. And I am super excited to actually be able to see how the, uh, the changes that have been made as far as, oh, actually you can solo like this is going to be soloable. How the hell is that going to work? I don't know, but I'm excited to try it and to play it at different player counts because we've only played it at four players because we thought, okay, having all four classes represented by players makes sense, but being able to mix and match that at different player accounts, I think that's going to be pretty exciting. So I have, I have a lot of expectation at this point and a lot of anticipation for this game, having tried it now and it, 
surpassing what it was that I thought it would be. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to playing this one uh, in its final form. Yeah, I'm interested to see how it'll work out with two players um, once we get a copy and I try it at home with Cindy. But yeah, it's really, I mean, and I really like how they've taken the theme and done so well with it and made what looks like at least a reasonable game and could be a more than reasonable game. Rolling into the next one, uh, a game that has two editions, and I've been fortunate enough to play both editions recently, and that's Fresh Fish. And Fresh Fish is all about, uh, it's a blind bidding game, uh, as well as a push your luck game in that every player has uh, markets that they need to place out on the board, and they're uh, collectively the shortest path to from their market to the actual uh, thing that they're trying to sell to. Uh, is what determines the final score. So the shorter the path between your four um, stalls out there and what it is you're trying to get to, the lower number, the better. So the lower score wins. You start with 15 bidding chips, and those bidding chips can be used to bid for tiles as they come up for auction. And then from there, any uh, bidding chips that you have left over at the end of the game, reduce your score by one per bidding chip. And it's nasty. It is just really a mean game in a good way. Uh, the blind bidding aspect, just everything about this game works really, really well in the second edition. Now, I highlight the second edition of this is because they there's one significant rule change between the first and the second edition the second edition has both rule sets and both the ability to play both ways the first edition only obviously has the first edition rules the second edition is going to be simpler and cleaner to be able to play those that love the first edition love the first edition and really don't want to play the second edition however i have played the first edition rules and i've i've played it three times i've yet to wrap my head around the one rule change and what that is is anytime uh, a road you can prove that a road must be built in a certain area then it has to become a road it seems like a very simple concept however what that requires you to do is constantly be monitoring every time a tile gets placed on the board does that lock down any or make it to where other tiles become roads and pathways it's tedious to me and it's just a not obvious way if you have somebody that that makes sense to and they can point that out really clearly that helps but the negative side to that is if you're placing tiles without fully understanding the ramifications of placing a tile in this location is going to cause this then it kind of takes away a little bit for it from it so for me I prefer the second edition rules because the rules make sense. Whereas the first edition, that one rule change is just a significant thing, a barrier that I just can't wrap my head around. <laughs> so that said, really, really enjoyed Fresh Fish and thought it was a pretty enjoyable game. And I theoretically have a copy somewhere in the library that I haven't been able to find. So <laughs> I appreciate uh, the... Uh, the folks in the group letting us use their copies. But yeah, Fresh Fish, I uh, definitely recommend checking out the second edition because even if you only prefer playing the first edition rules, it has them available in the box. So win-win there. 
the next uh, game is uh, both an old one and a new one, in that it's a very old game that I've been playing for at least a decade, and um, for Edward, it's been his first time. So that's I, I, I originally played it a few years ago, but it just, it was like... It, so too obtuse yeah, and so, now getting back to it now it makes sense so the game is race for the galaxy uh, the classic um card driven tableau builder um on tom lehrman um the, to, to describe it briefly you have a big pile of cards that comes through into your hand you use the flow of cards to build a tableau that will hopefully score you lots of points um the game is notoriously hard to learn very steep learning curve partly because of the iconography which is wonderful once you understand it but until you understand it it's very tricky and of course some people just don't understand it and that really acts as a barrier um but it's a game that you might think is very luck dominated because it's so much your game is dominated by these random cards that you're drawing from the deck but there is a lot of skill in understanding how to take those cards and form the exactly right shade of lemonade from your lemons and as a result it's a game that can play with people who know the game it's a filler in a way because you can play easily in 30 minutes or so first game can be a bit more of a struggle um, but it's also more than a filler in the sense that, unlike most fillers, it's the kind of game that I could play three or four times in a night and, and have a, you know, a long session of it because there is a lot of depth and thinking to the game. You play one session, you run it through, you, you kind of want to crack at it again and see what, this, what can I do with a, a different run of cards. Long been one of my favorite games. Um, so what was your first impression of it now after playing it for the first time more properly? Yeah, I... It seemed a lot more intuitive the, uh, now, although playing it against people that have thousands of games of experience, be it from the app or uh, or physical edition, um, I feel like I have no chance. Like it's 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 brutal to like I'm still over here thinking through my decisions, and you guys are already done with your turn, like in the snap of a finger, and I, it's it's intimidating in that regard. But I've enjoyed it. I really, really enjoy it. And it definitely becomes a game of, oh, it helps that you know that the cards, you know the certain aspects of it, and you know what's possible and what's not and what directions. Like, okay, if I do this, I know that it's going to benefit you more than it's going to benefit me. And I'm just much slower at processing that, having not as much experience. Mm -hmm. But that said... I totally get why race is race. I, I, I get why it's as popular as it is. I'm excited to play it more mm. uh, and w explore the expansions for it and looking forward to it. But I maybe it's because of experience with uh, playing so many games now. The learning curve for this is way easier than I remember it being because when I first learned this, I was pretty new to the hobby and I was like, what is going on oh it has a halo so that means something as opposed to one that mm. doesn't wait what and i think i was able to teach it pretty well and mm. the fact that we were able to sit down and do a very slow methodical th thinking out loud our process i think helps cement that for yeah folks. it was an interesting stream i thought you did an excellent job of the teach i've struggled to teach this game um and it was it was interesting stream because on most streams of course we played a game once here we played it twice the first time we played it we played it with all of us describing all of our thinking 
So it's the longest game of Race to the Galaxy I've ever played. I mean, it's like an hour and a half or something. It takes ages. But it, I think was the way to do it because this way you can really understand what's going on in our heads. And then we played it again at sort of closer to normal speed, maybe a bit quicker than normal speed. It's a contrast. Just to show how fast the game plays when you know what you're doing and you're not trying to explain everything. And uh, I thought uh, that was a good way to give a, the people a feel for what the game is like. I, I thought so, too, and I, I I think it was successful, and I'm excited to play it more. I mean, it's Race for the Galaxy. Yeah. All right, so let's go ahead and talk about uh, Dampierre. So this is a game that uh, was uh, I, uh, R&R Games reached out to me. Uh, and said, hey, are you interested in checking out this game? I said, uh, I don't know. Tell me about it. And they did. It's basically uh, it's about uh, making champagne. And I was pretty ignorant about the process of making champagne. And then they said, hey, it's uh, designed by Roland Costa, uh, the Portuguese team that also did Yinzi. And I was like, I've yet to play Yinzi in its final form, but I played the prototype and I... I I enjoyed that. So I was like, yeah, let's check it out. And so we we broke this out for players. And when you open up the board, the initial artwork screams, hi, Viticulture. How you doing? Like just the artwork of the board, just yep. completely and totally felt like Viticulture. Yet is nothing at all like Viticulture. Yeah, this is a meaty, deep, uh, heads up type game that, uh, that we definitely enjoyed. It ran a bit long at four players for a first game. Probably not where you want to play this for your first game. I would recommend trying it at three players uh, early on, but uh, I I was pretty impressed with it. Yeah, there were some really nice little mechanisms flowing in the game. So um, one of the mechanisms is how you get your sort of raw champagne grapes, and they have this area of the field, and you're building it up by this grid, and the idea is you place an item with three different colors that you can place on there. When you place something down, you get to take a grape for each of the, the neighbors of where you've just placed. So you're looking to place that. But of course, the thing that you're placing down also sets up the next person's move. So you've got to say to yourself, how do I set a move so I get the maximum of grapes out of it, but I'm not giving uh, a real gift to the person who's following me? And that, I thought, was quite an, a nifty little mechanism. And another the core mechanism in this game is you have uh, five or six tracks. I believe it's six, to where you have discs on these tracks. And every time the core action is you're going to choose one of these columns that you're going to move your disc up. And you're going to take that action. And there are, like I said, five or six different core actions that you're able to take. The downside is you can only take these actions five or six times throughout an entire game so when you have reached the top of this column they get stronger as the game goes on so maybe the first time first couple times you take this action you can only do it once a strength of one but in the future when you take that action you'll be able to do it two or possibly three possibly even as many as four times by the time you're done doing that uh column but the downside is you lose that disc. Like that disc goes out and it's 
that's one of the time that's the timer for the game so once you've eclipsed a column once you've done that action so many times it then leaves your board and goes on to the main board and that's going to be the timer for when enough of those have transpired between all the players that's going to trigger the end of the game and so you're choosing what actions do i take when but do I want to move this disc up right now? No, I need to wait to do that till later, but I need to advance this so that I'm able to do stronger actions. In addition to that, the cost for some of these actions is dependent on the lowest disc uh, row, not just co column, but row. So having one action lag behind to where it's now making all your other actions cheaper is a benefit, but it comes at the exclusion of being able to take that action and so mm. it's a really really clever uh puzzle if you will that you have to make and it's it makes for a very asymmetric way of playing the game even though all of us are trying to gather grapes we're all trying to crush grapes to bottle it or to put it into casks to then be able to sell it on one of four different tracks and so then we're putting out salesmen as well that are out there on the board. And it's just, it's a really streamlined, the rules seem a bit meh. When you're reading through the rule book, you're like, I don't know if there's a whole lot of excitement here. Yet, in actuality, there are a couple of really clever mechanisms within this game that make for really enjoyable gameplay. And it made for us going in very different directions. Uh, on all of our boards, even though we're all trying to ultimately do similar things, but the way we go about doing them was very different and thought it was really enjoyable. I'm excited to play it again at three players. Yeah, I'm looking forward to giving it another shot. I mean, that those mechanisms, particularly that one that you mentioned with the action thing is really nice because you're sitting there going, well, I'd really like to get more uh, grapes, but I've only got two more shots at getting grapes. Do I want to do it now or do I want to wait a little bit and do it later? You've got the whole extra element of the timing problem um, to deal with and that's what makes this game really nice some really nice mechanisms the question mark is length because it it took a, and and it's hard for us to tell because we only did one play we didn't know the rules first game etc etc so it it definitely overstayed for on that one game whether it will do that with subsequent games we just don't know yet um, but that would be the only thing that's a question mark to me about this game. Otherwise, I'm very interested. Some really original use of mechanisms here. Agreed. So the next on the list is Brian Brew. Um, it's which um, I kind of missed out on the prep for the stream and the, and the stream game of it, but uh, fortunately was able to play um, at a later game day. And this is a really interesting combination of a trick taker and an area majority game in that you have these tricks that you play. And it's one of these nice trick taker games where the, the winner of the trick gets an obvious benefit. They get to place one of their meeples in a particular area to, for the area majority aspect. But even if you don't win the trick, you get to have a little benefit because the card that you played has you know, what you get if you don't win the trick. Um, options as well and often you want to lose a trick in order to get that benefit more than you would actually like to win the trick. 
And so the resulting interplay of the cards and the trick-taking is very interesting. It reminded me a bit of Furnace in that respect. With Furnace is an auction game where you obviously get a benefit for winning the auction, but sometimes the benefit you get for not winning the auction is more important to you. And Brian Baru does the same thing in the trick-taking mold. Um, and you could argue trick-taking and auctions are kind of similar in some ways, but let's not get meta in that direction. Um, really nice the way that mechanism works and the way it works with the area majorities. Um, all in all, I, uh, that really did grab me. It, it didn't at first, and then the more we played it, the more it grabbed me. It's uh, Pierre hmm. Sylvester is the designer. Um, he's done a number of different games. Kind of the King is Dead. A lot of people uh, reference kind of this is kind of built upon that type thing. And we we had an interesting discussion about whether or not it really was truly a trick taking game. You're drafting your hand of cards before the hand starts. And there's only 25 cards. Everybody knows the distribution of suits, distribution of cards, and everything else. And it feels like one of those games, the more you play it, kind of the longer it's going to go, up to a certain point, obviously. But the more you play it, the more the depth of the strategy unveils itself. And so, therefore, the more you're thinking about in any given action. And this is very much one of those games to where literally every single thing that any one person in this game does has an impact on everything. And I was, I was really smitten with this game. It says it plays in 60 to 90 minutes. I think that's probably fair. I think 75 to 90 is a, is a realistic thing with, with four or five players. And yeah, I can't wait to play it more. So Sign me up for more Brian Baru. Yeah, one of the things I liked about it was something that at first draft I, I was a bit concerned about, which was as well as the action on the main board where you're putting your trying to get your meeples onto the, the, the various area majorities, there's a bunch of tracks around the side of the board that you can also push up a track. And I, I don't know, I've got a bit of a thing now about temple tracks in games. Oh, God, another little side way to score points that kind of diffuses the whole point of the game because so many games seem to be have these little sidetracks the nice thing about how the sidetracks work in this game is a they actually resolve to a certain extent at the end of each of the rounds and they resolve in a way that's an impact on the map so whoever's on the top of this track hey you get a monastery that you're able to put on one of your existing meeples on the map in order to boost your area majority thing so as a result you don't get this diffusion of what you're trying to do everything comes back onto the map to focus on the map and that makes the tracks a lot more interesting because yeah you're doing something slightly different but you are aiming to influence the same core element of the game and also as well a shout out for a very nice production i thought from uh, from uh, osprey who who made the game so it's a nice looking game had a good feel to it it did it just yeah i i want to play it more so mm. Props there. All right, so moving on then. Uh, acquisitions. Um, I, I have a bunch, uh, some from my Secret Santa, some from uh, just games, and some of which we've already talked about. Uh, so I'm just going to go through these real quick. Uh, Don Pierre, we've already talked about there. My Secret Santa, my Secret Elephant, um, killed it as far as I'm concerned. Gave me a copy of 1861 and 1867. 
so yay, uh, more train games. Uh, sign me up. But as great as that was, this was really, really kind of them. They gave me a magnetic tile storage thingy. It's like an kind of a insert sort of it's 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 I think it was 3D printed but it's it's magnetic to where it's going to make uh it's specifically for 1862 to be able to make uh soloing 1862 easier and I was like that's awesome I'm in for that so really really uh really appreciate it so thanks to Secret Elephant for that uh a couple just arrived uh I guess it was right before Christmas but haven't gotten into yet Bear Raid which is a game from BoardGameTables.com, um, also from Ryan Courtney, designer of Pipeline. So curious to check that out. And then uh, unexpectedly, there is a game called Ghost of Christmas. Whenever I hear games like this, I immediately like, eh, I don't know. But, huh, it's a trick-taking game. The designer is Takai Shinzawa. And I don't know anything about it other than it's a trick-taking game. So, okay, I'm willing to give it a try. Uh, and the last one that I wanted to take just a second to talk about, we have not played, and it was not at all on my radar. I had never heard of this game, knew nothing about it until it arrived. And the artwork is a bit misleading, I feel like. It's called Brick and Mortar from Octoraph Games. So this just showed up. And it's described as a, uh, a uh, an economic bidding game. And it's just rinse and repeat. Some people reading some of people's uh, thoughts on it, they, they reference like, oh, reminds me of splatter games. Reminds me of, oh, some people say, oh, it is horribly tedious and grindy economic game. And they rate it low. I hear those things and I'm like, ooh. Really? <laughs> so we're going to try and bust that out at game day on Saturday. So brick and mortar, looking forward to that one. So that that is all my acquisitions. Um, anything I, I haven't acquired anything since the last time we uh, chatted together. I don't buy very many board games. So fair, fair. I'm uh, able to keep away from it. Well, as far as uh, anything you're anticipating or, or looking well, forward to? Well, yeah, still anticipating Madeira as that, um, that saga. tire fire of a... Uh, of a uh, Kickstarter campaign continues to... I'm not saying it's making any progress because you can't really tell. The communication continues to be somewhere between dire and appalling, and who knows if anything's going to happen. <laughs> but they, they're certainly earning their new name of Where's Your Game, um, which Ouch. is sad to say because they have sucks. such a good reputation in the past for some really interesting games and... Yeah, that has really gone up in smoke with I, this Kickstarter. Not making any excuses, but I will say that a mix of first Kickstarter, along with the pandemic hitting in the middle of it, that probably made for uh, difficult times, I imagine, for them over there. Yep. But yeah, there, I. That's unfortunate. I will say that. The other thing that that should appear at some points fairly soon is another difficult Kickstarter, but a difficult Kickstarter for a different reason. That seize the bean. Um, now, I didn't actually um, deliberately try to get this game. It was actually one of the heavy cardboard giveaways from the last HeavyCon, what, two years ago now, nearly. Yep. Um, and it was also a bad Kickstarter, but for a different reason, mainly because they started the Kickstarter much earlier on in the development process than people expected to. So there was a lot of complaints about the 
started being really slow because of the fact that they were still doing a lot of development work on the game. Um, it wasn't like the kind of pre-orders that a lot of people expect now, for instance, with an Eagle Griffin, where they've done the game, they're just you know, going through the production process. Now, this was a game where they were still actually doing a lot of the development work on it. Um, but it is supposedly going to be delivered to me at some point in the next few weeks, and then I'll see what it's like. It'll be interesting to see. I'm excited to see where it ended up. I'm mm. looking forward to that. Uh, for me, a lot of people are talking about Ark Nova and excited about that, so curious to to get a copy of that and dig into that. That's kind of my main one there. As far as looking forward to playing, um, I mean, honestly, a lot of the games that uh, that have appeared that we we haven't gotten to yet and i had tweeted out and mentioned in slack a number of games air of tribes still high on my list 18 chesapeake still high on my list now brick and mortar i'm i'm really looking forward to playing and we're supposed to be playing gutenberg tonight uh trying to give that a go so i have no thoughts on that yet but looking forward to giving it a try how about you anything that you're Nothing that's uh, leaping onto my list at this moment. I'll just uh, go with a flow. Okay. Easy enough. All right. So a couple of things here that uh, Martin thought we ought to mention. So first off, Golden Elephant Award. People are asking about that because we're, we're two years behind. Kind of. We're really only a year behind on it. I say only, but pandemic uh 2020 so we're acquiring a, a few of the last uh games to give a try that are realistic potential finalists and then we'll go from there so shooting for hopefully no later than february or march for the 2020 and then 2021 will follow sometime after that i think that's a reasonable time frame for those yeah it, it's i mean the pandemic has really done a number on this because for a start obviously for pretty much a year, we weren't able to play any face-to-face -face games. And that obviously hammers the ability to make any kind of judgment about where games are. And, and there's then, only so much you can do over Zoom, right? Yeah, and you just, you just can't do many of these games effectively over Zoom. And then on top of that, it makes getting hold of games a lot more difficult. You're not able to get to Essen anymore. Um, the, the whole communication line that you get from going to cons and things completely breaks down. You haven't been to con for ages. So as a result, that makes it very hard just to get the games. And there are a bunch of games that I would like to try that just aren't here, um, which is kind of shocking to think that HCHQ does not have access to any game that I should ever want to play. Sorry but about unfortunately that. Unfortunately, it happens. So... That's the Golden Elephant Award update. And then Martin thought, uh, do we want to talk about best new games to us in 2021? And I was like, I mean, I feel like we could get a few of us together to have a, like a proper discussion yeah, about I this. Think that would be so I, I think we'll do that. But um, you had brought this up today and I was like, I have no idea what those would be. Not necessarily, we're not talking Golden Elephant Award like specifically or just new games to us. And I was going through the, the list of games and I mean, we're talking published games, so we're not talking like a hegemony or a weather machine or anything like that. That's prototype form. Um, but like the only ones that really, really kind of come to mind were like a furnace or Brian Baru maybe, or an oath because I, I've really been enjoying our plays of oath, but past that, I really have no idea. How about you? Yeah. I mean, the, the games that, that have appealed to me on the, to the new to me are only because they're new to me, not new games, right? So I've been 
a big fan of Ginkopolis, which is not a new game by any means. Sure. Um, but uh, I, mean, I mean, I was interested to try it because you know Jess is such a fan of it, um, and got a copy and been really enjoying it. Really fantastic game. But that would be my hit. But that's not a new game. When we look at the games that have actually been produced only in the last couple of years, and there's a number of games that I've enjoyed. I've enjoyed. I enjoyed Anno. I enjoyed Furnace. I enjoyed Fium. I enjoyed Beyond the Sun. But none of them have really leapt out to my mind in the way that, say, Pax Premier Second Edition did, or City of the Big Shoulders did, or um, Lisboa did, or Brass Birmingham did. So nothing has really shot up in my mind in the way that those have done. All right. So, yeah, I, I think that'll make for an interesting, like, bigger discussion yeah. with more folks. So I think, I, think, so. I, I think we'll do that in an upcoming episode. Um, so, all right, there you go. That's it. That's a wrap for episode 159. You got anything else? No, not really. All right. Happy, happy new year. Yep. Happy new uh, year to everybody. Be safe out there. Um, and, uh, be smart, get, get your vaccines, get boosted. Uh, it kicked my butt for about a day and a half, but afterwards I feel fine. And yay, I have the, the, uh, you know, peace of mind knowing, Hey, I've done my part and also, Hey, I'm safe or as much as we can be yeah, from this. So definitely. take it seriously. Be kind to one another. Have a great start to 2022. And uh, we'll talk to you all soon. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.